All right, our text is Matthew 4 again this morning. We're studying together through the Gospel of Matthew. So I would love to have you find a copy of the Bible somewhere there and pull that out. Turn to that 24th chapter. In this passage, Jesus is predicting God's great judgment on Jerusalem, on the Jewish establishment. And by the way, this is a great demonstration that God is not racist, that God is not favoring one people because of their physical lineage. And, and, you know, there are people who decry some of the things that God said to those people. For example, um, remember when he told Israelites, do not marry any non-Israelite, right? And, and people say, well, that's just ethnocentrism that was inherent in the Old Testament religion. Or when he commanded Joshua to destroy all of the Canaanite peoples in the land of uh, promise. And, and people say, well, that's just genocide. This, this is just one ethnic group cleansing the land of, of all other ethnicities. And the truth is, actually, that th- this is not about race. This is about a people uh, who were to be characterized by faith, by obedience to God. And when that nation turned from God, God brought judgment on them just as he had brought judgment upon those descended from other peoples. And this is a lesson, by the way, for all of us that we should continue in faith so that we would prove to be the true people of God because the people of God ultimately are not about any physical descent or, or a nationality, but, but those who have faith in the promises of God centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, in this passage, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is teaching uh, his disciples that God will bring a judgment upon Jerusalem and upon the Jewish establishment. That's what I've been arguing is the meaning of Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 35. That this essentially is focused on God's coming judgment of Jerusalem. That is, it was coming in time for Jesus and his disciples. For us, now it looks back to the past. That is, the fall and of Jerusalem and the destruction of that ancient temple back in the year A.D. 70. Now, this is a passage which has engendered great disagreement on the details. And as I have said over the last few weeks, I recognize that. And, and look at this passage, you know, with, with a certain degree of, of humility in, in my own understanding. Uh, I will say that I am not as fully convinced of the interpretation that I'm giving you, the, the explanation I'm giving you of this passage as I am, for example, of the fact that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was of a substitutionary nature. So there's not the same degree in my mind of certainty. Um, Nevertheless, this is a passage, I think, that 
that really does speak um, in, in the plainest meaning of our Lord's words to the coming judgment, the near judgment that was about to fall be just shortly after the time of our Lord upon the nation of Israel for their disobedience. Here's what I see in this passage. It starts out, and I'm just going to give you a summary of the passage in four quick things. And if you remember these four, I think you've got verses 1 to 35 down. It starts this way. They say, see the temple. Jesus says, not one stone will be left standing that will not be cast down. They say, when? And he says, before this generation passes away. That, that if, you, if you get those four things, you have verses 1 to 35 down, as far as I understand them. Now, they also ask, secondly, about the parousia, the appearing, the, the, what I would consider to be the second coming, the coming in glory, the future final manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They do ask about the parousia and the end of the age. And that discussion begins in earnest in verse 36 and following all through, in fact, down into chapter 25 as well. So, Lord willing, we'll get to that in time. But uh, for the moment, the context that we're considering speaks of great tribulation and desolation that God would bring upon Israel because of her sin, and especially the sin of rejecting over and over again the messengers that God sent to her, ultimately culminating in the sending of the Son himself and their rejection of him, God's great messenger. And this is to, this is to highlight for us the, the weightiness, the seriousness of dismissing the messages of the word of God. That's what this passage ought to do for us. That we see how serious a thing it is to be dismissive of God's proclamation to us. To count it as nothing. To let it go in one ear and out the other. To say, yeah, that was a nice sermon. And to walk out and, and live exactly the same way. Right? That, that's what this passage ought to um, stir up in us is a sense of the seriousness of that kind of thing. Now, this passage is an announcement of God's judgment upon unbelieving Israel. And after announcing God's judgment on the unbelievers, Jesus then turns and warns those who believe in him, beginning in verse 15, when he says, um, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then you have this little aside, let the reader understand. Jesus says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what, in his, what is in the house. Let not the one who is in the field, uh, let him not turn back to take uh, back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. 
And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man. Whenever, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So Jesus says that the abomination of desolation is the beginning of the great tribulation and the signal that his disciples should flee Jerusalem to get out of town before the judgment of God falls. Now that phrase, abomination of desolation, is a very significant one. I spent really the whole sermon last time, the last really long sermon, um, going back into the background of that. I'm not going to do all of that again. I just want to really sort of recap in the briefest of ways. The Old Testament warned, we found uh, the Old Testament warned that God would, uh, um, it, excuse me, it warned the Israelites against the abominations that they were committing. That is the worshiping of other idols and the rebellion against the one true God. And he warned them that that kind of abomination would bring about great desolation, that God would abandon his house, he would forsake his people, and bring a foreign power in to destroy his house. And then God would in turn judge that foreign power for not giving the glory to God. And over and over again, you see that basic theme playing out throughout the prophets. God will judge you by a people whose own wickedness will be judged in turn by the almighty God who rules and reigns over all kings and nations. Well, Daniel takes these terms, bringing them together, and this terminology becomes the immediate background for Jesus' use of it here in Daniel in Matthew chapter 24. Daniel uses the term abomination of, that will bring desolation. Um, he, he uses it several times uh, in his prophecy. Daniel's prophecy is about the last days. Of course, most everybody knows that. Uh, Daniel uses that kind of terminology three times. He says these are visions about the last days, the latter days. And we find from the writer of Hebrews that he identifies those last days as these times in which, quote, God has spoken to us by his son, as opposed to the times when he spoke by the former prophets. Now, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So sometimes people say, Pastor, are we living in the last days? And my answer is always yes, and I have Bible for that. Now, are we living in the very last of the last days? I don't know, but I do know that we are living in the last days. Now, Daniel outlines the time frame for the last days. He outlines the time frame for the last days through um, the interpretation of two different visions that God gives. These visions both speak of four successive kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of Babylon, 
Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These kingdoms will be God's judgment upon his people, upon the nation of Israel. These kingdoms will bring God's judgment upon Israel for her sin. And then in turn, God will turn around and judge those nations for their pride. And he will set up his kingdom under his king that will rule eternally from then on. This is God's great eschatological end time kingdom under his appointed chosen king that is being prophesied. Now, Israel at the time of Daniel was, um, was under a present desolation that had been wrought on their land by the kingdom of Babylon. But he prophesies two future desolations upon the people of Israel. The first would come under that third great kingdom or empire, and that is prophesied in Daniel's chapter 8, chapters 8 and 11. The second great desolation would come under the fourth kingdom, and that's prophesied in Daniel's chapter, Daniel chapters 9 and 12. In other words, over 500 years in advance, Daniel warned about what Jesus now predicts will take place within a generation. The surrounding of Jerusalem by foreign empires, the desecration of the what should have been a holy place, and the desolation of the city and its temple. These things, in fact... Uh, just as Jesus prophesied, did take place within the lifetime of his, his disciples. They began to see a, a perversion of religion, of, of, the, of, the, of the temple that was unlike anything ever before, and a giving over of that temple to desolation and decimation um, For example, the Jewish zealots, these were the guys who were ardently against Rome, wanted to throw off the the, uh, shackles of the Roman Empire, and they were uh, very, well, they were very zealous, weren't they? They were zealots, after all. They were very zealous to stir up Israel to go to war with Rome and throw off uh, the Roman uh, rule. Uh, they, they defiled the house of God by committing murder within the tabernacle, or the temple itself. And turning from their true Messiah, they sought to establish their own kings, uh, independent of Rome. They were pressured by the Roman armies. And in AD 68, they turned to Israel's historic long-time enemy, the Edomites. Now, that name has a history that goes all the way back into the depths of the Old Testament, into the very foundations of the, the Jewish nation, and on through. This is his, Egypt, this is um, Israel's long-time enemy um, engaged by these zealots to come in and give aid. And these uh, Edomites come in and overrun the temple They killed the priests, including Ananus, the high priest, who was sympathetic to uh, Rome. 
Josephus writes these words about those days. I think I have it for the screen, perhaps. He says, I should not mistake if I said that the death of Ananus was the beginning of the destruction of the city and that from this very day may be dated the overthrow of her wall and the ruin of her affairs. He said, in the same manner, Daniel also wrote about the empire of the Romans and that Jerusalem would be taken and the temple laid waste. Those days were a great time of turmoil and bloodshed in the very temple itself. And not only from the Jewish zealots, but the Roman legions, they literally brought their abominations into the temple. They set up their idolatrous military banners there and offered sacrifices um, to the emperor on behalf of the emperor. Um, But I think on the deepest level of all, it was in fact the people of God who brought these desolations upon themselves. It was a priesthood, for example. It was a, a priesthood who should have, of all people, they should have seen the the Messiah when he came, who yet hardened their hearts against him, who rejected his claims and continued to offer the, the, the sham and, and of a ritual of a sacrifice in the temple day after day when the Lamb of God had truly laid down his life for his people. And, 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 and even that offering polluted the temple in a way that was consistent with what all of the prophets had said. For example, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, the Lord said to his people, listen, don't bring me any more vain offerings. Incense that you offer up to me is an abomination to me. In verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands in the temple to worship, he says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And full of blood they were. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was on their hands. The blood of many of his disciples by the time you get to 70 AD. The blood of the prophets who came before as Jesus had just charged them, as people who constantly kill the prophets to silence the word of God that's coming to them. All of these things brought were the abominations that brought this great desolation upon them. And so our Lord says to his own followers, to those who are willing to hear him, he says, now when you see the abomination of desolation, Or Luke records it this way, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then, Jesus says in verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out. He says, don't don't turn around and run back to get anything. Pray that you're not slowed down by the weight of pregnancy or or having small children or by the winter weather or Sabbath closures. Just get out as fast as you can, because when God's judgment comes, it will be swift and it will be unavoidable for those who are there. And you know, the Bible always pictures God's judgment that way, as something that is swift, as something that comes upon people who are unbelieving in an unexpected way. It falls upon them. No one 
is ever able to say that when I see God about to bring judgment upon me, then, then I'll get right with God. Then I'll make up my mind to clear everything out of the way. Then I'll set myself back straight and, and I'll come back to, to church and I'll hear the word of God again and I'll repent of my sin. Now, the, the, the Bible always teaches this, that God's judgment, when it comes, is, is, is irrevocable and, and it's final and it's swift and it's unavoidable and you can't be ready for it. He says, these people, um, when, when you see what I'm predicting to you, God's judgment is about to fall, so get out and get out fast. To those early disciples that were still there in the region of Judea and in the city of Jerusalem especially, he says, just get out and run up to the mountains. Get away from this whole area of Judea because I'm going to bring a judgment upon this area. And in fact, history tells us that that's exactly what they did. The early church historian and Eusebius, he wrote this. I think this is very fascinating. I think we've got this for the screen as well. The number of calamities, he writes, which everywhere fell upon the nation at that time, the extreme misfortunes to which the inhabitants of Judea were especially subjugated, and how at last the abomination of desolation proclaimed by the prophet in Daniel 9.27 stood in the very temple of God so celebrated of old, the temple which now awaited uh, was, excuse me, which was now awaiting its total and final destruction by fire. All these things anyone that wishes may find accurately described in the history written by Josephus. Eusebius goes on to say, but the people of the church in Jerusalem, that is the Christians, the believers in Christ, having been commanded by divine revelation given to approved men before the war, they left the city and dwelt in a certain town of Perea called Pella, which is a little bit north of Jerusalem on the eastern side of, of the Jordan. And apparently that was kind of an epicenter that many of the Christians from Jerusalem fled to when they saw these things begin to take place that the Lord had predicted. And he, uh, Eusebius goes on, he says, And when those that believed in Christ had come there from Jerusalem, then, as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. Praise the Lord that many of his people were saved from his wrath by listening to his word. And I, I just want to tell you, that is the way it works. That is the only way in which any people, anytime, anywhere, are saved from the wrath of God. It is hearing and believing the word of Christ. And these people did. Jesus says, verse 21, that once this begins to take place, he says, there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. 
But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You know, somebody says, well, you know, I'm not sure about this historical fulfillment, if this really was the fulfillment. I mean, how can you say that, you know, I'm sure that what happened in in the judgment on Jerusalem was really bad, but how can you say that it's the worst tribulation in the world? I mean, there have been a lot of bad stuff that's happened in the world, right? But I want want you to keep in mind a couple of things. One is that this is spoken in the context of the Jewish nation. This worst day of the world, this great tribulation, is in the context of the Jewish nation. Daniel chapter 12, from which all of this is drawn... He says this way, God says to Daniel this way, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. This was truly Israel's darkest hour. In fact, when they truly ceased to be a nation in terms of everything that made that nation actually distinct, which was not their bloodline, but the presence of God in their midst. When God removed his presence, this was Israel's darkest day. Josephus, once again, in his history of that war, and by the way, it's, it's a long and very detailed um, description of these times, he, he describes the incredible suffering of the Jewish people, and he says this, Neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. It appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. And it was an awful, awful time when the wrath of God was on full display. The Roman general Titus began his siege of Jerusalem a few days before the Passover in A.D. 70. He surrounded the city with four Roman legions. And while they pressured Jerusalem from the outside, the Jewish, various Jewish factions inside the city were fighting just fiercely amongst themselves, killing almost, you know, killing many, many people before the walls were ever breached, in fact. At one point, the zealots um, Josephus records that they destroyed all of the city's, or at least many of the, the city's food supplies. Perhaps in some misguided attempt to get God to dramatically intervene and manifest himself over the Romans, sort of in the way that he did in the days of Hezekiah when he sent his angel, remember, and slaughtered 186,000 of their enemies. And, and they believed that something like this would happen because, in fact, they rejected the words of the Lord Jesus. Those days were dark days indeed for the city of Jerusalem and for that nation. So desperate were those times that history records they even resorted to cannibalism. Josephus relates that there was a Mary 
daughter of Eliezer, who was from a wealthy family, um, but her property and her food and, and things were plundered by the Jewish defenders of the city. And famine, he says, was, quote, eating her heart out and rage consuming her still faster. And maddened by hunger, she took her infant child to her breast and said, these are Josephus's words, poor little might in war, famine, and civil strife, why should I keep you alive? With the Romans, there is only slavery, and that only if alive they, when they come, and that only if you're alive when they come. But me, to the, uh, excuse me, but, but famine is forestalling slavery, and the partisans are crueler than either. That is the, the, the Jews in the, in the camp, in, in the city. I think this is up there as well. She said, uh, come, you must be food for me, she says to her child. To the partisans, you are an avenging spirit. And to the world, a tale, the only thing left to fill the measure of Jewish misery. And in defiance of all natural feeling, Josephus records that she killed her son and and roasted his body and ate it, part of it, and hid part. This, this was an unspeakable time, um, and, and, I, and in a way that only begins to give us a glimpse of what happens when God utterly removes his presence and his blessing and his favor upon a people. The Jewish zealots themselves slaughtered 8,500 people in the temple in a day. Josephus estimates that as many as a million Jews were killed during the siege and destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Finally, in the mercy of God, the horror of those days was cut short, um, and, and the Romans broke into uh, those walls and captured the city after about five months. Even then, 97,000 were enslaved, including all children under age 17. Thousands were forced to become gladiators for the Roman uh, entertainment. The lampstand from the temple, you remember the menorah and the table of showbread, were brought to Rome and paraded through the streets. They built a huge stone arch to commemorate the victory of Rome over their enemies in Jerusalem. I think that arch still exists today. All of this was in fulfillment of the covenant curses that God had predicted long ago when he first gave to that people the law that established them as a nation. And you can read about these. And last week I said, uh, I pointed you to one of the passages in Leviticus 26. There's another one in Deuteronomy. That these become the foundational for understanding this relationship with God and his people and how all of this comes about. Here's what the Lord says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 49, way back at the beginning and the establishment of that nation. The Lord says, um, uh, God, through Moses, he says, 
the Lord will bring a nation. This is if they disobey God, if they continue to resist God, then God will bring them upon them the curses of the covenant. Remember, a covenant is something that you, that you are bound in, that establishes a relationship that usually has bless, blessings and privileges that are attached and also curses for the breaking of the covenant. And so the, this is a pronouncement of the curses for breaking the covenant. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. If it, it also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege, verse 52, they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. All of this happened in keeping with that covenant that God had with that nation and the rebellion that they continued to manifest against his gracious revelation. And once again, Jesus warned them that in those days, false prophets would take advantage of that time of unrest and uncertainty and everybody's fears. In verse 24, back in Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform even great signs and wonders, right? Which is a reminder that just signs and wonders um, are not foolproof uh, manifestations that that person is truly from God. False Christ, prophets, false uh, Christ will perform signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible. Even the elect, even those who are chosen by God to be in mercy, see, Jesus says, I have told you, I'm warning you ahead of time. So if they say to you, oh, look, the Messiah is come, he's out there in the wilderness. Or if they say to you, look, he's in the inner rooms. He says, do not believe it. And this is exactly what happened. Once again, Josephus, telling the history of this, writes this. There were such men as deceived and deluded the people under the pretense of divine inspiration but were for procuring innovations and changes of the government. And these prevailed with the multitude to act like madmen and went before them into the wilderness as pretending that God would there show them the signals of liberty. But Felix, a Roman authority, thought that this procedure was to be the beginning of a revolt So he sent some horsemen and some footmen, both armed, who destroyed a great number of them. Our Lord warned that false teachers would come. And these false teachers taught that Christ had returned in his visible kingdom. But 
that only they could help, the, help you find the Messiah and be located in his kingdom. It was out there in the wilderness or it was in some secret room somewhere where Christ had come back and was establishing the beginnings of his empire. Luke chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said at that time that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be what? Observed. So in other words, Jesus' kingdom was coming. In fact, yea, it was there. The king was here. He was about to be seated on his throne, but at the beginning, his kingdom would come in unobservable ways. Nor will they nor will they say, look, here is the kingdom, or look, there is the kingdom of God. For, the king, for behold, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is in the midst of you. This is why I showed you a couple of weeks this other slide, this, this um, the biblical, um, I, I think biblical, uh, picture of the kingdom of God. Do we have that? Put that up again. Um, for now, right now, with the, with the ascension of Jesus and his being seated at the right hand of the throne of Almighty God, his kingdom is begun. When the king sits down on the throne, it's not just, you know, like you sitting in your garden chair to relax. This is an enthronement. This is the kingdom being established, being founded, like the Lord said in the second Psalm, Behold, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have enthroned him. This is the beginning of the kingdom of God, but that kingdom will at first be unobservable to the natural eye. It will be invisible. It will be seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion. But yet his rule and reign and all enemies being put under his feet will not be immediately manifest In fact, he will continue to rule until all of his enemies are finally and visibly and manifestly placed under his feet. And his kingdom will be made visible, will be made manifest. It will appear when he comes again. That is, at his parousia. So, Jesus is saying here, he's warning them that right now, The kingdom is being established, right? And he's about to use that kind of enthronement language in the next paragraph as well. But he says right now at the beginning, don't be fooled as if the visible kingdom is being manifest somewhere and you're going to miss it because that is not the case. Don't be confused, Jesus says. The parousia, the second coming in glory will not be obscure, You won't need signs to figure out if the second coming has happened. You'll know it. When it happens, you'll know it. It will be visible. It will be an unveiling. His present rule in the heavenly places, it'll be like the curtain will be pulled back. Jesus will appear and all of heaven and earth will know that Christ rules and reigns over all things. That's what is still yet coming for us. Jesus warned his disciples, don't be fooled now. He, he contrasts this present period, this invisible reign of Christ, this heavenly reign with that future parousia in verse 27. 
He says, as the lightning comes out of the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming. This is the word now that they asked about before his parousia. So will be the coming or the parousia of the Son of Man. When Christ comes to earth again, you'll know it. You'll know it. His glory will be revealed. It will be unveiled. It will be manifest. You won't have to wonder whether or not you missed it. This very public, manifest nature of the second coming, to my mind, argues against some of the other interpretations of this passage. On the one hand, the hyper-preterist interpretation that says that all of biblical prophecy Everything in the Bible, including all the prophecies about the second coming of Jesus, they've all already been fulfilled. And we look around and we wonder, did we miss it? I mean, the resurrection, the final judgment, everything is all done? I think this kind of passage mitigates against that kind of thinking. On the other hand, I think it argues against the dispensational concept of the rapture. That is that the understanding that Jesus will come and believers will be taken up into heaven with him, but he won't be yet made manifest. And people might wonder, did I miss it? No, I think the Bible teaches that when Christ comes, it will be with a shout with the sound of a trumpet, like lightning going across the sky. It will be unmissable when he comes. No one will have to say, was that Jesus? It'll be Jesus clear all the way through. Now, long before that, Christ would bring judgment on the rotting carcass of the Israelite religion. That's kind of what it was. That's why Jesus says in the very end, verse 28, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The vulture, the word vulture, is actually a translation. Um, The the, the word just simply means a a bird of prey. Um, In fact, it's usually translated as eagle, an eagle. But, of course, in the context where you're talking about a corpse and dead things, you naturally think of a buzzard or a vulture or something like that in terms of birds of prey. It is interesting, though, that the image of the eagle was featured so predominantly on the Roman military standards. Jesus, I think, is invoking, really, the curses of the Old Testament, the curses for breaking faith with God under the terms of the Old Covenant. Isn't this exactly what God said back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, what we just looked at a few minutes ago, verse 49, look at it again. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. He'll come and devour you. Jesus said, you're you're a rotting corpse of a people, and God's going to bring the birds of prey down upon you and judge you. Listen, friends, God's judgment fell on that rebellious people in that awful 
year, their great tribulation. But all of this should not be for us just a matter of, you know, historical interest or figuring out, you know, some little prophetical details or hearing a new theory on end times. Fascinating as, you know, it is to to study these things. My hope, my prayer is that it's much more than an intellectual exercise for us. These things were recorded for us. These warnings of our Lord were recorded for our good. They are intended to bring us all to sobriety, to recognize that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, especially if you are a man or woman or boy or girl who has had so much revelation from God. You, my friend, are incredibly accountable for what you have heard. Take it to heart. Lay hold of it by faith. Make good use of it. Submit to what God has revealed to you. Let it bear fruit in your life. You know, in reflecting on God's judgment on Israel to a largely Gentile audience, in Paul in Romans chapter 11, he compares the people of God to an olive tree, a planting of God, nourished and cherished, and he's waiting for it to bring forth And And Paul says that the unbelieving Jews are like the natural branches of the tree, and yet though they are naturally in the tree, they are broken off and thrown into the fire because of their unbelief. And then he compares the Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples of the world, who yet believe in Jesus, the Messiah, he compares them to wild branches that yet get grafted into the one people of God. But then he leaves us with this warning. Take note of these words. He says, you will say, this is from Romans 11, you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He says, that is true. But he says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Take note, he says, verse 22, of the kindness and of the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. That's what this morning was all about for you to take note of the severity of God toward those who have fallen, but also of God's kindness toward you, provided that you continue in his kindness through faith, by his grace. Otherwise, he says, you too will be cut off. 
It is never, never, ever a thing for any people to be proud of, proud about that they are the people of God. It is for all of us to recognize that it is only by the mercy and the kindness of God. And it is only true for those who continue in his kindness by faith and because of his grace. And so I admonish you, brothers and sisters, to stay humble, to stay sensitive to God, to continue to fear the Lord, to flee from sin to the Lord Jesus Christ to hear and believe his words because that is the only way to escape the wrath of God. What is the word of Christ to you? Today Christ says, come to me. Flee the wrath to come. The judgment of God is about to fall, not on the city of Jerusalem, but upon all who reject the Lord. And you flee, not to the city of Pella, but to the city of Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, the blood that was shed in the place of his people, the righteousness that stands for them on their behalf, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Listen, whatever it is you're holding on to, forsake those things and run to the Lord Jesus and put your faith, your hope, your trust in him. Turn your life over to him. Become a follower of Jesus Christ by the mercies of God. And if you are, then continue to follow in his path. Don't grow cold and hard and apathetic and in the end prove to be just as much of an unbeliever as these people were. May the Lord be gracious to us. Father, we pray that your word would find a home in every mind and heart that none of us would resist what we hear or would be apathetic about what we hear. Lord, give us faith to receive and believe the Lord Jesus Christ today and to continue in him. We pray it in Jesus' name.